Welcome to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast, where we support your quest for a happier, healthier, planet-friendly life that supports you, your family, and community. This show is produced by Go Green Locally Org, a Nevada 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to provide information, resources, and support to live sustainably and support your path of green action to take better care of our people and planet. In today's show, we are taking a deep dive into growing your own organic gardens. Growing our own foods is good for the environment as it minimizes waste, reduces fuel consumption to ship foods across the world, and often results in healthier produce from growing without GMO seeds and weed and pest poisons. As a side note, for anyone who is growing their own garden and might be thinking about expanding their gardens to sell to the community, I would like to share some information provided by Ashley Jepson with the Nevada Department of Agriculture Plant Industry Division Administrator. Local residents can sell their own fruits and vegetables they have raised by acquiring a producer certificate through the Nevada Department of Agriculture at agri.nv.gov forward slash producer underscore certificate. This link will be added to our show notes. You will have to check in with local government such as county and city authorities to make sure land use requirements are appropriate and with local water authority to confirm appropriate water use. In terms of the things that you can grow, there are only restrictions on growing cannabis or anything that's considered a noxious weed to our area. They encourage people who are interested in participating in the local food movement to reach out to their local cooperative extension and community gardens like Urban Roots and Northern Nevada. Nevada Grown as a resource that Nevada producers can use to build awareness of Nevada Grown products. And Reno Food Systems and Desert Farming Initiative provide farmer incubators and interning opportunities. And now we'll cut away to our interview with Charles Chambry with Desert Farming Initiative. I'm pleased to be speaking with Charles Shembry, who is the Program Director of University of Nevada, Reno's Desert Farming Initiative. At the Desert Farming Initiative, Charles is responsible for administrative duties, programs, grants, and coordination of all farming operations. He's also an agricultural specialist for sustainable and organic farming practices. His previous experience includes multiple diversified row crop farms, small-scale orchards, CSAs, farmers markets, and restaurants. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me and share some of your knowledge with our listeners. So my understanding that there are many programs to help small farmers with everything from food safety to researching crop varieties and providing um, plant starts. But aside from the many services for farmers, can you tell us how DFI also works to support home gardeners in North Nevada? Well, we don't we don't actually have any programs that are specifically focused towards home gardeners. You know, it's something that like the Master Gardeners Program extension seems to, um, maybe that's a little more of their bread and butter, but everything that we do really is complementary to any type of home gardening because we're farming a, on a small scale, intensified and diversified farming system. And so our, our focus and what we want to do for the state of Nevada and for the Great Basin high desert regions is to have a very successful educational and commercial farming system at the university that we can, we're constantly trialing different crop varieties, this climate. So for the home gardener, you know, just understanding that 
well, broccoli might not do so well if you plant it at a certain time and you got the seed from some source. But what we do is like, we might actually grow broccoli really well and say, no, you know, this is the time in which you would want to plant it in this climate and building our organization out to have the, you know, the resources to have more technical information out there that would um, apply to the small grower, even the large grower. And then the gardener, of course, could, could, you know, gain valuable information from, from our, our, uh, our information. So on that um, topic, what are some of the unique uh, climate challenges that we have here in northern Nevada in terms of when to start planting and and that type of thing? We have a climate here that is actually quite conducive to standard planting successional regimes that you'll find in most North American climates that aren't very far south towards, you know, the Gulf or too far north towards Canada, but um, maybe between 30 to 40 degrees latitude Uh, maybe even tighten that up to like a 33, 34 degrees latitude at 38, you're going to, there's a lot of successful farming operations out there, uh, valleys, California to the Hudson Valley that, you know, have these four season farms like Elliot Coleman from New England, who's going to be in the higher latitude of what I just spoke of. I mean, he's mastered that and he was really a revolution for, small growers to understand how do we create an income from a small farm, you know, 10 acres, 15, 20 acres. When we say small farm, maybe up to 50 acres could be called a small farm. So this climate here really has the window to do it, but the difference is our altitude is very interesting and we're on the you know being up in the reno area for most of the great growing regions of nevada is going to be probably in the eastern sierra uh you know regions up you know fallon i would throw into that category and a little bit more east but you know in nevada we have we have um, like in the Eureka area where there's a lot of agriculture, people are farming at 6,000 feet elevation. We're at around 45 in Reno. So the shoulders of the season, when we say shoulders, you know, like the, the creeping of spring and the exiting of summer into fall, fall, winter, you know, these are the hard time periods to understand when you really should put something in the ground, or if you want to have crop going in the fall, when do you need to actually plant it maybe starting seed in the greenhouse you have a lot more wiggle room in some other regions but we have these really kind of volatile episodes of weather in especially springtime so yeah i mean to to kind of wrap up my thought here is that i've seen these windows of sort of trickery in mother nature where it's a year where it's really warm in February and March starts feeling warm, whether you're in Reno or parts of California where I've lived and you get, you get ahead of yourself. You might try to direct seed something outside. And then all of a sudden winter comes back and slops you in the face for three more weeks in a row. So I think that's more common in this climate. And, you know, people always talk about it not a lot of gardeners don't want to plant until after Memorial Day. And there's really nothing wrong with that because it puts you in a safe zone, you know. And if you're going to, you know, what we we got things in the ground outside in mid-April this year into our field, but it's covered with row cover. They went through, um, they did get hit by frost, like all of our brassica varieties. Definitely, you know, we were worried. Did we do the right thing? We're always, we're taking these challenges at DFI. 
but as things warmed up and they were in this under the row cover and they were able to sit there and not be completely dead, they sort of came back. And then before we knew it, we had a crop that we were able to rely on in the early or mid mid spring season, but we really don't get kicking out there and outside in the field until after May. Um, let me ask you, do you use like an Agribon 30 or 50 or what do you use? Yeah, usually an Agribon 30 is a nice one because it's just, it's not going to degrade as quickly. So, you know, it's it's a more opaque than like the Agribon 19 is probably my favorite tran- um, sunlight, um, what do you call it? Um, is it kind of acting a little bit like a shade cloth during? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like a shade cloth. It's reducing the, the solar radiation through the um, material. You know, 30 is thicker, so you're going to get a little bit a little bit less sunlight through there. But with our winds here and everything, the stress that it puts on the row cover and the management, we have to really tighten those things down permanently almost. We're, we're just piling soil up along the, the ridges on the bottom and the furrows of these um, the row cover but i say agribon 30 is good for here too because um we started using it a lot this year in the middle of summer with like we grew we grew a lettuce all through the summer we had a great romaine sales program people were like wow I, I can't believe you're picking romaine on the middle of august it's it's totally doable you know and we were using row cover we would transplant and we were actually using the agribon row cover knowing that it was going to increase temperatures under the cover but it reduced sunlight intensity and being at the altitude we're at that is a big deal how about are you using like hedgerows now we we developed a conservation farm plan um last winter and started implementing it this year so that we're at the you know ag station in reno it's really devoid of things like that so we're the first to do it and we did actually install a hedgerow this year you know it's going to take time and then we have other insectary rows planted in the field and we're we actually just today seeded three more perennial insectary as a low hedgerow. We just did that today, um, in fact, with a, a school group from Reno. Nice. Yeah. So we're, we're going to build that out. But at, at the moment, we don't have mature hedgerows, but we're really excited about getting that habitat on the perimeters of the farm. Excellent. Are you bringing in bees or do you, is that part of? We haven't brought in bees. Um, we did partner with uh, Bees for Vets for a while, and um, they were running bees, um, the apiaries out at Main Station off McCarran, where we DFI actually used to have some ground out there um, when it was first founded, but now we're concentrated at Valley Road. But um, And we would really actually love to have bees out there that we didn't necessarily manage, that if we had a partnership and then we had students who could learn from it. You know, being on state land... Um, um, all of this requires contracts essentially with folks. So it's a little it's a little more challenging. So a lot of times we either have to fully implement it ourselves because we'd also like to get some small livestock out on, on the farm. And that's something that is probably our first priority than, than to have bees. Right. So um, I have a question in terms of watering. Are you using like inline inline emitters? We use all drip, you know, standard T-tape. That was the old school term, T-tape, you know, for drip irrigation. Um, it's all it's all inline. And like the spacing, do you have it vary depending on what kind of crop? We generally, I mean, you're kind of subject to the spacing of the manufacturer. We generally go with the eight inch spacing of... Um, 
we buy our drip from uh, Dripworks. They're actually in California, and I forget the forget the brand uh, that we're purchasing right now. But either usually either eight inches is what we do standard. We do have um, four inch spacing. It's more expensive, but we we do have four inch spaced drip because um, we get better coverage with our direct seeded root crops. You know, and things like arugula or spring mix. You know, this tighter spacing of the drip it puts out less water volume per hour, but it you know that your drip plumes connect a little easier and you get you guys just get better coverage um, we do actually have 12 inch uh drip and we like that for tomatoes and things that are like spaced on 24 inches you know because because we don't want to be watering the whole bed it's more weeding so it is it is nice if you can fool around um or better words be more be strategic <laughs> with your drip spacing but you know, it doesn't always happen so perfectly you know around the farm as we're moving drip irrigation around and just, you know Right. Now, I've read that in some cases that the inline emitters need to be cleaned out. Like, I guess there's some vineyards that are using some kind of acid, either they're running it through their their hose or they're putting like a drop of it into each um, hole. Like, do you have any um, need to do that at DFI or do you have suggestions for how people handle that, keeping it clean and maintained? Yeah, so we we don't have to do that much at DFI because interestingly, we we really, we only irrigate off of city water because that's the way the ag station is set up in our field, which is very different than what a you know a grower on their farm would probably be up against. They'd have some sort of water delivery service, maybe through ditch, or they'd be on well. So they need a good filter. And given that you're going to have a lot of organic solids, um, and um, emitters do clog up, especially the, t- the T tape. So let me just address this. I mean, in the industry of you know larger scale agriculture, that T tape material it's never reused. It's probably a huge waste issue. We try to reuse as much as we possibly can but the reality is it's just cleaned up it's just pulled out of the field and thrown usually into a recycle service um how long do you find it usually lasts? Depends on the mill, the millimeter um, that you you select. I think we usually get like around six mil, but I th- you can go up to eight mil. I think mills the four. I mean, four mil is just you know will last like a couple seasons. You know, if you're a gardener, a home gardener, I mean, you you have more capability of um, reusing things and and them nicer than what you deal with in, in a larger you know even our size field being you know three to four acres. You know, poly polyhose your typical like landscape polyhose you can buy that with built-in emitters or if you're you know popping in your emitters that pressure compensated emitters those aren't going to really plug up as much but definitely the stuff that's in that t-tape those types of um orifices really can clog depends on your water chemistry and two because if you have any bicarbonates you're you're probably gonna have some precipitation happening over time um if you're injecting organic fertilizers into your drip which we do you are have way more potential of bacterial algae growth inside and the algae it grows like a bacterial algae and they it, it will you know just kind of spread and and cover um usually in vegetables we're irrigating every two to three days so the lines stay pretty clean but yeah if you have an issue um i do have a lot of experience with this actually I used to work with farmers to help them with this kind of stuff um phosphoric acid there's a lot of phosphoric acid process products out there so, uh, organic 
products to, and they will um, essentially, you know, strip and, and material. Um, you let it, generally you inject it and you, you try to let it sit in the lines if you can, um, and then come back and flush it out 24 hours later. But there's a lot of materials out there. There's one that's called, um, let me see if I can remember because it's certified organic. Um, oh darn, it's called like Drippa, Drippa something. <laughs> I can remember what it's called, but it's not, I can't remember the product, but it's a it's a popular one. In fact, if you go on dripworks.com, I think they they carry a, a, a product that's really good for that. Yeah. Because I, I feel like sometimes what happens if you've been home gardening for a period of time, then you ask, you have to be careful of like leaks and things like that, that you might not even see because if your hose is under mulch or something like that, you have to, you know, because we're a dry state that, you know, we have to be careful. We're not wasting water. Yeah, if you're going to have stuff buried, I mean, you certainly don't want to be using what I'm calling the tea tape. I don't think a lot of home gardeners are really experienced with it either because you can't buy it at Home Depot or those kind of places. You know, the tape is um, something that you have to probably purchase online or, you know, if if you buy seed off Johnny's, I mean, everyone loves Johnny's catalog. Johnny's has tea tape in their catalog. Um, and, And it is a really nice way it's a cheaper way it's uh easy managing of, of the tape for your vegetables um but you know you can just buy that what i call spaghetti hose the quarter inch line that's got the inline emitters and those are pretty good those don't plug up very easily they're more expensive they're a better emitter they're usually pressure compensated which they have like an engineered flow path and it's pretty hard like netafim is a brand that i would whether you're a agricultural producer or a gardener see if you can seek out netafim them it's a product uh you know it's israeli the israelis invented drip and uh they've had the best products cool so yeah so do you have any other kind of suggestions that you can think of right now in terms of maybe as we're going from fall into winter what people might want to be thinking about right now i think you had you had asked me originally about the idea of fall planting and having a winter crop and you know it's sort of too late depending on if you have a hoop house you could you could try but you really have to get if you want to harvest stuff in the winter which is really tough here there's only certain crops as a gardener you have all the opportunity and potential because you don't have a product you need to sell so that's you know to keep in mind is what i say here is really through a lens of sales too like i can't sell a damaged broccoli head i could eat it you know and that's the glory and beauty of gardening is it's it's a higher level of sustainability i mean you could eat whatever you want at any time however you decide you want it to be but that's not the way it is on our farm we have to sell product that meets a sales you know a sales uh, quality and expectation and sorry i got off a little topic there but when you ask me these questions i just kind of my brain kind of goes in another direction too with you know, what, what's involved in this whole thing you know to come up with a, an answer like that but you know this is a time where you know soil health is really important getting cover crops um, you know, the gardener has a lot of opportunity to not worry about soil health. They're not rototilling. They're using a fork, getting some kind of mulching, you know, any organic material onto your, your garden. Don't You don't have to rip everything out. Living roots are so important. The decomposition of living roots um, stabilize the soil. Uh, they, they're conduits and, and, you know, river systems of the, of the soil. And so yeah, I'd like to tell gardeners at least cut, cut your, try cutting your tomato plant at the base 
space, like right at the soil surface and let it decompose through the winter, you know, because you're leaving a habitat there. There's microorganisms that have colonized that you brought in for the year and you don't need to like turn your ground into bare ground. We want to maintain ground cover. We want to mimic forest systems, especially if you're into permaculture and regenerative agriculture, which is, is sort of a no-brainer as a gardener. You know, get get um, your compost pile, even if it's not completely decomposed. Once your garden's done, it's going to be any day now, right? Two weeks at least, we're going to be done. Like hard frost is probably going to hit. Um, you know, try not to just pull your plants completely out. Keep as much material. Keep the stable soil stabilized. Get caught. You could actually put your undecomposed compost out, you know, on there as like a mulch, you know, not like wet stuff you just d- dumped in the compost yesterday. But I mean, maybe you have like a section that's, you know, not like beautiful crumbly, throw down the, the soil because those micro microorganisms out there in the soil will begin helping you out. Um, you can, you know, that whole idea of um, mulch layering um, is a really good idea for the garden. Um, but if you were trying to produce a fall garden, this, this would have started in summertime. You know, we're just starting to harvest broccoli and we planted broccoli the beginning of July in the field. So, I mean, that's, we were planning for that broccoli in April for fall crop. That's, that's where it goes, you know. What about cover crops? Are you using them? Do you suggest them? What do you suggest doing after they've matured? Your first question, your first uh, question to yourself would be, am I going to till my soil under or do I want to try to be no-till? And that's going to dictate what cover crops you select. But either way in the garden, you could, you have a lot of flexibility. Um, We are growing a lot of cover crops, trialing them. And it's, we're really one of the few, um, you know, there's some, there's some private farmers, you know, out there working with winter cover crops. Winter cover crops are the most important cover crop that we could use because we don't want to have our soil exposed during the winter. Um, storms strip the soil away. So we need, you know, through water and wind erosion. So we, we're focused on winter cover crops. We're using a variety of brassicas trying out um we have trials set up essentially because this is there's no technical information out there right now there's nothing that's been published for really even the great basin so uh, something like a winter cereal rye is known to be great in cold climates triticale is a hybrid wheat rye um but getting into these other more classical green manure cover crops that have different legumes like vetch winter pea bell beans and then maybe a winter wheat winter oat mix those types of like winter oat winter wheat are like hit or miss in this climate we gotta have we gotta know the right cultivars for for these specific grasses and those those are the things that we're doing right now at dfi we're we're testing out different um species we have a lot of brassicas this year we're doing different um uh, you know like daikon radish we have different mustard blends and we have um we're doing winter fava. We're doing fava beans this year. We're going to see how favas do because favas should be really good. So, you know, as a home gardener, you know, grow, grow establish ground cover. Um, brassicas are going to be your best bet. And then like a, a cereal rye, a winter, winter. Cere- so there's rye grass. There's an annual rye grass. That's something you're going to find like, in maybe even, you know, like feed, like a pasture, even lawn sometimes are like a fescue rye. 
mix. We're talking about a cereal grain, cereal winter rye, because the annual rye is, is a different, it's basically a different species of grass. Um, so use a, use a cereal rye, a winter one. You're going to have great success with that. And uh, having like a vetch or some sort of legume mixed with it is really the best strategy to go. And then in the summer or when spring comes, you know, mow it down and get some moisture on it, get some moisture on your ground, whether, however you want to do it, and then use your soil fork and it's going to be a workout. So like gardeners don't like cover crops because it's like, it's a lot of work, <laughs> you know, if you're you suggesting turning it or just kind of making a space and planting your seedling in there you could do that you could make a space you could you know think about it from this minimal tillage perspective and just that area say a tomato maybe take like a you know a, a foot and a half or like a two foot radius of a circle or something and leave the remaining area around it intact i think that that's a really interesting approach um in a garden scale yeah you definitely can just put the shell to the ground and work up that area that you want to plant and um you're you know and then you're going to also reduce your weeds because if you mow something you know you're you're probably watering it somehow so that's what you we we've actually we did a dfi this year in one of our hoop houses we did a no-till cover crop and we planted tomatoes in it and we did exactly what we're talking about and this was a lot of work and one, one of the challenges we had is that that cover crop that we mowed and we even didn't water it for like three weeks before we planted planted and it was it was like dry and brownish and then we you know created the holes and we planted and we amended the holes and it was you know very intensified when we began irrigating those tomatoes the cover crop just proliferated i mean it didn't go away you know so we were actually doing a lot of weeding like we were weeding our cover crop and you know it was it was quite challenging on the scale we were at as a gardener it would be much easier but um well, I, I, I have heard that it's like you really have to know your timing. Like if you cut it back at the wrong time, it just gets vigorous. <laughs> and I was a little nervous about that. Well, yeah, it depends on the species that you're growing, you know. So that's probably the most important thing is like what if you're growing a, a grass, like a fescue or a triticale, it's going to put a huge fibrous root system. I mean, you know, like a like a, a fescue on a lawn. I mean, try to kill it. Really, seriously, try to kill a lawn. See what happens. I mean, it's going to try to come back. You know, it gets moisture. It's going to try to come back. But um, growing legumes, they don't have as big of a fibrous root system like grass. So I think legumes are a good approach for a gardener, like winter peas. Um, you could also, as a, as a gardener, try to, like, if you have a winter garden that is sitting, cover crops is basically the... The way I'm starting to really look at cover crops in this climate is let's get away from the traditional perspective of what a cover crop is. Let's take it down to its its the root verb or you know it's we're talking about not a verb sorry but I mean the the verbiage of a of a cover crop it's cover right we want to cover the ground. How do we cover the ground? We can do that through other crops. And one thing we're doing at DFI this year is all of our arugula rows that we grew through the summer, we have not turned them over. We, we've mowed them to about six inches. They were letting, we let them even like flower and go to seed. We mowed them. And now our beds, you just see these like intact beds out there in the field. And instead of trying to turn it over and reseed it into a cover crop, we have a cover crop. We have an arugula cover crop for the winter and it might, excuse me, it might look dead winter, but it's ground cover. It's, it's root systems are stabilizing the soil. 
And so for the gardener, I would say, you know, you, you might try to grow some things that you could eat through the winter. And if you, um, come back in the spring and then till that uh, under by hand or whatever you could you could kind of look at it as a cover crop i mean as you know rain rain impact intensity causes huge erosion to the soil so if you had these big cauliflower plants that you picked in fall and you just left them there like let them sit there through the winter and protect the soil from the elements that's kind of where we you know we try to take that approach um yeah yeah i think that's um that's a good idea um, I just want to make one other note about what you said earlier. You know, true, we don't, as gardeners, have to, you know, produce a product and sell it. But at the same time, gardeners don't feel some level of success. Then often they're, then often they feel like maybe they have a brown thumb. They don't have what it takes to grow something and they might give up. Well, I have, I have some perspective to share on that with gardeners who are listening, because I have a belief that you should always try to grow something at least minimum. And I said at least minimum three times. Don't ever grow something once or twice and say, oh, this just doesn't do good around here. I mean, how many people have said to you, oh, you can't really, you can't grow. That doesn't do good around here. And, you know, if you think about everything else in life that we go through, we have to go through so many repetitions to become even decent at something. Like say you, a favorite meal that you cook and you have to look up the recipe and it's awkward and you cook it and then you're like, oh, next time I'm going to do it like this. And like every time you cook that meal you're almost doing it differently until maybe one day you nail it where you decide and that's just how I do it and that might be years later same thing like you know I'm a mountain biker like I hit up a trail that's intense and I don't know the trail and the turns and the 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 rocks and the technicality of it feels really challenging the first time I would never decide I can't do that trail again and one day I wake up and I'm like oh that trail is really easy because I actually know every turn and I know where those rocks are and that's my analogy with growing a lot of different types of crops you know like you have to become familiar with it we only get one shot every year you know Rick Latin over in Fallon Latin Farms been growing garlic for 30 years and I said Rick one day said isn't that funny you've only grown garlic basically like 30 times even though it's a nine-month crop so it occupies like the majority of your 30 years you only really get 30 shots at doing it and so as a gardener you just got to embrace uh same thing as a small vegetable producer you have to embrace failure and not even it's a learning experience and you can totally do it right the next time you just gotta you gotta know it you gotta feel it you gotta understand it it's the same thing with with everything else in life i I feel like i think that we give a little bit more respect to um a lot of other things in life you know someone might go to the gym and do an exercise that kills them that day well they're kind of excited to come back the next day and give it a shot you you, you do see gardeners get very timid and scared even even direct seeding something like oh growing something from seed wow i'm gonna fail good fail but you're not gonna fail eventually you're going to really nail it and you're gonna love it so that's my take is just enjoy the failure and take it as a fun step to becoming really good. Cause when you get good at something particular, um, you know, it's just, it's really rewarding. That sounds good. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your uh, sharing all of your wisdom. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast. Please take good care of you and yours. Stay well and help us all make this a kinder, healthier, and greener community for all.